This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, once again, welcome back to the podcast that seemingly never ends, the DLR Cast, <laughs> the, the podcast by and for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend and co-patriot of all things, Dave. Darren Paltrowitz, what's happening, da- uh, Darren? How are you? I got Dave on the mind, man, which is good because... This is the right podcast to do that. How are you? Yeah, they both start with D-A. Uh, it, so no fault to you on that one. So does dementia, which apparently <laughs> I, I occasionally suffer from. Dementia? <laughs> yeah. Uh, by that domain. Um, yeah, it's great to be connected with you. Another week, another series of Dave Mysteries, and another what the hell is going on prompting of of Dave land. So I think it's kind of status quo where my mind is active. We don't know what Dave is doing, and it's great to connect that that trifecta. Yeah, the occasional artwork that shows up, but then as always, once or twice a week, including right before this podcast, I do a little Google News search. <laughs> and uh, this week, there's a story at MetalInjection.net. Uh, I don't think it's the anniversary of when he appeared in 2004 on The Sopranos playing himself, but there's a good article about it here. In fact, they also mentioned they mentioned when he was a paramedic in New York City, which we covered here on this podcast a few episodes back. Yes. And that apparently, according to this article in MetalInjection.net, he ended up saving a woman's life after she had a heart attack, apparently. And he also performed with the Boston Pops on the 4th of July that year, a bunch of other yeah. things, and talked about him playing himself on The Sopranos. So all of 90 seconds with a few minutes of dialogue. Yeah, you can see kind of a highlights reel of that Sopranos episode on YouTube where someone cut together all the parts where Dave's on camera and speaking. I interviewed Max Casella, who was on a lot of Sopranos episodes, and I asked if he was around Dave, and he said no. So I'm still scheming of how do I figure out a Sopranos tie into the show with the, along the lines of Dave. I've, I've interviewed three or four people from that show, but that that's one area where we're currently stumped. Yeah. Uh, seemingly a little, uh, yet another, uh, yet another weird little mystery, which you have got a couple, which we'll get to from the jump here. Let's, and we'll get to this as well, but we've got a great interview coming up with Mark Elmer, who was the editor on No Holds the infamous no holds barbecue film. And this is one of the, this was so much fun. We learned so much about yeah. Dave. And it, it, when you think the la- this episode, the previous two episodes, we have learned so much about the no holds barbecue. This is the place to find <laughs> out about the video. Most people seem not to know much about. Yeah. Mark Elmer is somebody that we found because I was Going down one of those 2 a.m. wormholes. I did not buy three copies of Skyscraper on vinyl that time. (laughs) I was just on IMDb. You know, one of my mysteries that I haven't been able to figure out, and I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this. I put this question on a Facebook Dave group, and it led to the most racist and stupid answers ever. And that's, who is the actor that's in three of the Dave videos? He plays the convenience store clerk. You, you know who I'm talking about, who they're all like in the Yankee Rose video. Right, but that's right. The convenience store clerk who looks on an, an alarm as that woman comes barreling down the aisle saying, my doctor said I need to take a laxative. One of my favorite yeah. lines of all time. So sometimes I just blurt out 
at will in supermarkets every now and then, which is cause for some alarm and some odd looks nowadays. But <laughs> I, I get you. I feel you, Steve. And <laughs> at the beginning of the going crazy video, I didn't watch just to go carefully to see if he's in there. But he's also in the background of this home video that Dave put out where he's at the bar with two blondes and this guy's the bartender in there. And he has some speaking improv kind of lines. And when I say racist and idiotic, I mean, the things are like, that's Eugene Levy. It's like, that's not Eugene Levy. Even if you're two blocks away, you would not think that's Eugene Levy. And then other people go, well, that's Pete Angelus. That is not Pete Angelus. <laughs> and then like, oh, that's Jaime. He, he, he runs the convenience store on my block. That's shut up. Uh, <laughs> so I want to figure out who that guy is. That's a mystery I have not solved. And a second mystery that's come up is you, I, I believe you've watched this on the Daily Roth YouTube channel. Did you ever see the Roth show episode New Year's Eve, where it's just 25 minutes of him dancing in a bunny suit? Yeah, he's in the bunny suit. Of all things, I have seen that. Yes, I, I don't watch it as often as I plug turn on every now and then and plug into uh, 50 rides on the love train. But yes. I have seen I have seen that. And that's with living in America, right? That has living in America, the James Brown song, bunch of songs. And he actually left the credits in this one. I said that because part of the mysteries related to no holds barbecue is he cut the credits out when he reposted it to YouTube. So we do see Mark Elmer's name in this compilation video from new year's eve like seven eight years ago and a couple of the tracks say performed by the dlr vegas band Ooh. and i'm wondering if the track the, the group that he cut ice cream man with that sat on the shelf for like eight years or so before it wound up on the diamond dave album if he legitimately cut all the songs from the vegas show with them if he did a bunch of covers with them man and that is a fantastic question to get him in shape to get him going but the living in america cover sounds nothing like no ice cream man no 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 so that leads me to think well it's different musicians he was using in vegas okay are there multiple dlr vegas bands who you know to to sound like seinfeld like who are these people yeah, there is that is a deepening, a deep rooted family tree there. We've talked about this offline. We just need, we, I would love to try to get a count just of how many players have gone in Dave's orbit. I mean, compared to other soul, which so many never made the public light of day. Yeah. Let alone recorded. And compared to so many other solo rock stars, uh, compared to, oh, I don't know, just about all of them. <laughs> Dave, Dave's had more, has had more side people and band members than most anybody I can think of. Yeah, as we learned from the Melissa Reiner interview, somebody showed up late, a keyboard player, I believe, and Dave dismissed him right then and there. So we don't know the name of that person, but that's yet another person of who is this person? Who are these people? So are there multiple DLR Vegas spans. Uh, could it have been that he did multiple stretches of Vegas and this was for the 2004, 2005 ill-fated Vegas show that didn't happen that nobody will talk to me on the record about? 
and uh, you know, we have some great listeners to to the show. There's one guy who's been leaving comments on on our shows, and he told me something today about a Manhattan yacht club. It, yes, the Hudson River Club. What, yeah, if you if you recall, Dave kayak solo, or leasing a kayak without with, solo around Manhattan Island. And apparently, that inspired this guy to start up his kayaking club business. It, it's actually on the website. The guy says, and my friend David Lee Roth said, blah. What? <laughs> so that's another person to chase down. And, uh, you know, every time you think you figured out the story, there, there's more. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Mark Elmer, because I got to tell you, first off, seemingly one of the nicest, coolest people you'll ever want to talk to. And Mark is still in the business. He recently worked on a show coming on Fox called Domino Masters. I guess it's a spinoff of Lego Masters. That airs its first episode on March 9th. Yeah. Uh, he, he does voiceovers. Of course, he'll go through all the editing. And it was a lot. He spent a lot of time working with Dave. And I think if I remember correctly, do you smoke weed with Dave on the very first day? I mean, <laughs> he's got some great stories. <laughs> and above all else, just really all, po for the most part, positive stories of working with Dave. And just, he had just this, you know, here we are, we're talking about Dave being, so, you know, being so controlling, but he really had kind of a creative license to just, yeah, yeah, think outside the box, man, try it. And it sounded like, and I think what most people have picked this up, is that, you know, it kind of informed a lot of his work moving forward, where it, I think it helped him get more creative. I mean, he was kind of new to the business back then. And, and it just sounded like to me, I inferred that he really was, uh, Dave helped him think way outside the box. If you think it's, if it's weird, let's try it. Let's do it. Yeah. It's not traditional in the sense of editing and filmmaking what they wanted to do. And Lord knows it certainly shows up because I watched that again uh, after our interview. And it's so interesting to, after our interviews with folks involved in it, to go watch this again and go, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I get that now. I see this. So very, very cool stuff. One of the things we, I believe we talked on the mic with Mark Elmer about was how there's one guitar player whose face is blurred out and cut out of a couple shots. And I guess they didn't carefully go through everything in Dave's archives because that 25 minute dancing video, you see that it is Bart Walsh. He wasn't blurred out of the clips that they used for that as part of Dave dancing. So that is a mystery that has been solved. But then, you know, six more stack up. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So why was Bart Walsh, you know, hidden from that? I, I remember Bart Walsh when he left the David Lee Roth band again in 2002. It was a totally positive. Like, I'd like to thank Dave for his time and his effort. Uh, a lot of times people diminish uh employees or within their organizations when there's like shared intellectual property but bart walsh did not have any co-writes in the roth catalog he didn't record anything that got released uh there was no trademarks could there it be as simple as something where they he just didn't get a release signed or something that could be it that could be it but his face is unblurred and other stuff which could be just an accident. Who the hell knows? Yeah. I, you don't hear anything that Bart, who unfortunately I think we lost like four or five years ago. He's not one of those infamous people that you hear like, oh, I never worked with 
want to work with that guy again. I mean, he was a longstanding Atomic Punks guy before he joined Dave's band. And then we didn't hear much about him after he left Dave's band. I think he worked for Gibson. I think he went to that side of, of the guitar and working for the company, okay. playing maybe he was with some cover bands, that kind of a deal. But like of any musician that you're going to think of that Dave played with, you, you blacklist Bart Walsh? Yeah, why go? It makes no sense, right? It makes no sense, and then that led me down a, another wormhole. Before we go to the awesomeness <laughs> of, of Mark Elmer, and you go, okay, so in Roth in 1997, 1998, just guitarists, just guitarists. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! There was, there was John Five, Mike Hartman. Terry Kilgore, Bart Walsh, Brian Young from 1997 to 2002, 2003. There was five or I think I just said five guitarists in a six year period. <laughs> oh, she's in there. Oh, six. Toshi Hikeda. Six. Who is in No Holds Bar? Who is in No Holds Barbecue? He was in No Holds Barbecue. And then he did the 2000. Three, four, five, and six touring, I believe. Wow, six. That's guitar- almost as many. Gu- six years. That's that's almost as many guitar players as he's had. As he's had since the uh, Vegas dates in uh, t- in twenty twenty, the Kiss tour, and the aborted Vegas dates uh, earlier this year, as as your investigatory prowess has has found out. Counting the people that made it to the gigs or not, because it, it might be tied. <laughs> I, I can give you the numbers and names right here. I think he did have six guitarists. Okay, so Tuggle, Jake Fawn, Frankie Lindia, Alistrada, that's four, Chris uh, Griotti, and then uh, uh, Andrew, I forget. I don't know if he's Andrew Martin. His name is Andrew. He, he's kind of got like a Keith Richards fro kind of vibe happening. You can find him online if you Google a little bit. But he only made the dress rehearsal. So that was six guitarists in just that period. God, that is, it's almost it's impossible to keep up. I hope somebody's writing this all down. You probably got post-it notes scattered all over the place. I bet you probably got a wall there that looks like, you know, the cork board in a bad episode of Law and Order uh, CSI or something. I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> I don't know I how you keep track of it all, man. I guess uh, you speak to enough geniuses, you hold on to some of it at the very least. But I, <laughs> I think that the turnover, there, I think there's two ways to look at the turnover that, that he's had in musicians. And one is like, oh, he's a control freak. He's changing his mind. And the other is he knows what it is that he wants. He's willing to experiment a little bit to get there. And some people just aren't willing to go to that Dave level. So in other words, that's kind of looking at things with a devil's advocate kind of way. We're going, maybe he does know what he wants and he wants to try this out. And you think you have a gig for three years and he's just going, nah, let's try this. Okay. Didn't work. Next. Interesting. Yeah. I think he is definitely a perfectionist and, I, and you had mentioned this several times before that the that the outward look is that it's it's unrehearsed and it's carefree and crazy and all that, but it's not. And 
That reminds me of a bunch of interviews that happened last week and a bunch of press happened last week because it was the 10th anniversary uh, last week of the final Van Halen, the release of the final Van Halen album, A Different Kind of Truth. There was a great song by song feature at Ultimate Classic Rock by Wolfgang. And one thing really stood out that in the beginning, Dave wanted, uh, wanted to be the sole background vocalist. He didn't want Wolfie and Eddie singing. And uh, and I, they uh, they won out and they, um, you know, that really surprised me. I mean, one that he would. I would just surprise me to hear that. Yeah, I, to I read that. have to think that the word because I didn't get to see any of the Van Halen reunion tours, but you had said that Dave on the first one was strong as can be. He was great. He sounded great. He was singing in top form. Then the word yeah. is that uh, on the on the 2012 that era, a lot of people said he wasn't good anymore, and he uh, everyone says he wasn't great on the last one. But the jury's kind of out on that second run that they did, and this album is around that second run. Yeah, I saw him on. I saw them on the 2007 reunion tour, and I was just blown away. I mean, any any concern I had was just completely gone every lyric there was no lyric no fake or not lyric screw-ups 2012 yeah. with a different kind of truth there was a couple of rough spots when i saw that one show as far as the record i thought he sounded fantastic which of course who knows what, what you fix in the mix and their studio tricks and stuff but considering how the background vocals and nobody can replace michael anthony yeah but the vo- but the background vocals in every in a van halen song are so prominent and dave doesn't have that high register yeah, and they and they're not one to use really when you except for a few lone lone instances to use a lot of outside musicians or background vocalists. That he was trying to do a sort of kind of a background vocal power grab surprised me. There was some really good articles about that. That ultimate classic rock one was was really interesting. It was a real good one about that album. And there's a fantastic one on a website called somethingelsereviews.com, mm-hmm. which is called Why Complaints About Van Halen's A Different Kind of Truth Were Overblown. To be no known. I've got, truth be told, I've got no complaints about the record. I've waxed ridiculously and poetic yeah. and enthusiastically about that record in many a podcast episode here. Yeah. So glad that we were able to get it. But it was just, Wolfie said basically all really positive things about Dave in this article and and, and talked about song by song. And, and um, yeah, it was it's very interesting. Again, another little peek behind the curtain, which Wolfie has been pretty good about doing. He, uh, through it all, he's... He's not afraid to talk about this stuff. He's it's all been positive when you think of it. Yeah, I agree with that. I never watched, by the way, the downtown session that they did around that where they sort of played acoustic. Have you watched it? I have. It was interesting. Uh, one, the whole band is in it together doing the acoustic stuff. But the interviews that Dave does, the interviews, Alex and just Alex and Eddie Wolfie's not in the interviews and it's really talking about uh, talking about the you know they're uh, coming up in Pasadena and the early days of the band and there's some good stories there and Dave's kind of the talk show host and and yeah. and it doesn't seem too stunted doesn't seem scripted it seems pretty relaxed they get a lot of laughs together but let's put it this way I've seen bands in similar settings look a lot more relaxed and a bit more give and take i mean it doesn't sound like at least from the interviews with wolfie and what we've known about this record overall is that 
they did not spend a lot of time together working on this record. It was the three oh. of them and John Shanks yes. and then Dave. There were times when they were all together and, and there's a there's several songs on this Ultimate Classic Rock uh, interview uh, article mentions it that not every song on there was pulled from the vaults. There's a couple new things that they got together and figured out uh, as far as arrangements and stuff. But there, there was no hours upon hours of the four of them all in fifty-one fifty woodshedding, which right does, shouldn't surprise most people. But still, after all this time, kind of bums me out a little bit. Did the UCR art article um, was? Well, let me say this correctly. Was that the source for the Rick Rubin piece or the Rick Rubin bit of info in there? I didn't know this until a week ago that that they had reached out to Rick Rubin about doing the a different kind of truth or what became that. Um, why did I hear that recently too? I can't remember now. I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but that would have been I th- that record might not have ever come out if Rick Rubin was doing it. That is a good question. Uh <laughs> the <laughs> pandemic, I got to interview Butch Vig from Garbage, who worked on lots of Nirvana and Foo Fighters, etc. And I asked him, you know, my stock. Van Halen, hey, and you ever meet? You ever? And he said, "Oh well, I was asked to work on that album, and I declined." And you go, "Okay, so Butch Vig was asked, Rick Rubin was asked, was, and, and I think Desmond Child in my interview with him, I couldn't tell if he was referring to present day or 1996 or both. It makes me wonder if they just reached out to a ton of producers before they chose John Shanks, who's great, don't get me wrong. Well, Wolf mentions that John Shanks came via Dave, and they were skeptical. Okay, so that's a confusing thing, because a name that I see on lots and lots of Dave's credits is Alex Gibson. You see, uh, he I think he's listed as having mixed the downtown sessions I think he might have gone, I think he was on the Diamond Dave album. So there's him, there's Tom Sorowski, who he uses a lot of stuff with. So Dave has a few audio steady people he's used. Go-to guys, right? But did John Shanks produce the DLR Vegas band tracks? (laughs) Full full style callback right there. But... (laughs) But that's uh, that's a bit of a mystery. But when I another interview that I did early into the pandemic, I spoke with Ross Hogarth, who engineered a different kind of truth. And he said that Dave entirely did his parts at, at Henson away from the rest of the band and he slowed it down. That's really interesting. You know, Shanks was a surprise to me because of who's he who he's worked with in the past, which is a slew of people he's written a bunch of songs for people i think does he am i right does he has he played in bon jovi the last few years um and as a guitar as a as a as a second guitar player as bon jovi expands into a into almost e street band size type of band now oh yeah uh, which is no surprise whatsoever and but he's worked with i mean He's produced Kelly Clarkson, everybody from Kelly Clarkson to yeah. uh, to Robbie Robertson, Ashley Simpson, uh, Carlos Santana, Celine Dion. He would be a great interview get. But I remember thinking at the time going, well, this is a surprise because I always thought of him more of a pop, pop rock sort of guy. And here he is. He has a hand in 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 bringing forth what I think is the heaviest sounding Van Halen record ever. Totally agreed. 
But, you know, being a skeptic right here, seeing all the footage of Van Halen rehearsing sound checks as a three piece without a lead vocalist, hearing how heavy it is and hearing how Dave recorded his parts or most of his parts on a different kind of truth away from the band, kind of have to wonder, did Shanks also produce the Van Halen parts or did they you know puzzle piece it all together and the heaviness did not come from from shanks it's more like they went here's the instrumental stuff add your part who knows what you can do with pro tools but it does have a real organic sound to it i mean it's, i love it's, don't get me wrong here i'm just being a skeptic based on the fact that no one can give us a clear answer about anything well i'll tell you we'll at least make some attempts to pull Pull the curtain back here at the DLR cast. That's for sure. And we'll, we'll, we can certainly, we're worth our weight in gold here as far as speculation too. I don't even know what that just means, but you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying there, unless that was a Roth lyric. And then I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> that could have been out your filthy little mouth. <laughs> Whatever it is, back to Mark Elmer here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You always, when you write his name, you have to do the comma A-C-E because, you know, he's a legit union guy. Uh, you know, you got to pay him the right rate. You have to give him the credit or else your your production gets shut down. So so uh, that's our Mark Elmer, who kindly spoke with us. Uh, did we give the URLs for his uh, his website it'll, and all that? It'll, it'll be in the show notes, but we sure can. It's markthededitor.com. You can find all things about Mark there at his website. Mark with a C, and then he's also Mark elmervoiceovers.com there you go on linkedin if you want to stalk them like like i have been known to do to a, a guest or two on the show but uh my favorite thing about this interview and you can tell me if i'm nuts about this is that he actually listened to the melissa reiner full interview <laughs> so he feel <laughs> that he was researched enough and melissa i've had the pleasure of speaking with and emailing with since that interview so that's Two people from DLR's camp that don't hate my guts. Can we make and, it three? We'll and, see. And two people as we as we exhaust the uh, the David Lee Roth No Holds Barbecue uh, credits <laughs> as far as people who worked on as we try to. Yeah, there's some other folks we can get to on that end. Some some folks who said, "Yeah, I'd love to do it," and you go, "Okay, when?" And they go, "Notice I didn't say any words there." They just, right. <laughs> as the young kids say, uh, the, the ghost list of Roth continues to grow, but there's been a few things taped in the last week or so that we're going to hopefully have for you soon. So, you know, don't give up on us yet. We haven't reached the point of this podcast where we have to do best of episodes. Like Van Halen, we've got a lot of stuff in the vaults. <laughs> a lot of stuff in the vaults. We have alternate takes. We have uh, outtakes. We have uh, live outtakes um no all serious like <laughs> certain podcasts i love do that thing where they they realize like oh we want to go on vacation oh what do we got what do we got okay um best of moments okay we can do that um oh from the vaults let's, right. let's reshow episode 33 again right right not on the dlr cast we're no. not scraping from the barrel just yet no and we should also mention, too, because you mentioned a listener. We're happy. We love getting listener mail and feedback. We'll uh, gladly 
uh, crowdsource this show. And if you've got tips, info, news, questions, thoughts, comments, complaints, hit us up at the DLRcast at outlook.com or send a message to the Poutralcast YouTube page there where you always can get the DLR cast as well, right? Did I get that right there? Yeah, you got that right. At Paltrow, it's on most of the stuff. Paltrowcast, you'll you'll find me. I, I'd say the one if I can if I can give one more mystery that I'm I'm currently trying to figure out that I would love if somebody knew something about. Okay, so I've confirmed that Ink the Original no longer exists. I figured out who the owner of it is, and he's posting all sorts of naked people getting tattooed with the tattoos that they just got. I get that. But what happened, and who are these people that worked on Ink the Original? I am dying to know this. Uh, me, t- me too, because it, it, it is, when you think of it a bit more, and let's not spend 20 more minutes on this, but when you, <laughs> but just let's put this in capsule form here, okay? In barely a few months... Okay, there was a publicist hired, a website, social media, all this stuff at a lot of expense. You got to guess. At least seven million dollars put into it, allegedly. And I don't think you ever could you ever find the product. Could you purchase it anywhere? Where did it go? I mean, it does. It did it ever exist for more than a few months? What? What the hell? It was the strangest pro- new company announcement rollout. I, I can't figure it. He said that there was dozens of people working for it, and I may or may not have tracked some of them down on LinkedIn. And that preceded, I'm pretty sure that preceded the raw, the DLR cast. So I found some of these people, but the farewell message to the company, which is up at inktheoriginal.com, it goes- the farewell to, message. <laughs> it says, first our favorite restaurant, the corner bookstore, now us. What a long, great trip it's been. Long trip? He like abandoned the trademark in less than a year, I think. So I can only imagine there's an amazing story in Ink the Original. I'm not saying I want to write a book about Ink the Original, but if anyone knows anyone that worked for Ink the Original, we we can use um, shaded pronouns. We can do the voice disguiser thing. We can give you an alias. Um, instead of saying Dave, we could say uh, Maeve. Um, whatever. I'm dying to know about this. With us now is Bill, the <laughs> the CFO for Ink the Original, voice heavily disguised. Hey guys, thank you for having me. You know, one of the things when Dave was the angel investor that we never thought we'd get, he just... I mean... We'll we'll do that. I I will sign an NDA that says I will not disclose your identity. I will do that if we can speak to you about Ink the Original. Among the mysteries we discussed here, that is one that I forgot about. Just on to the next thing, right? After a huge investment. And if I can give a teaser, we might be very close to getting somebody who worked on the Tokyo Story short film. We might be very close to speaking with somebody who could tell us what the heck that was. Ooh, okay. Bottom line is, I so admire a guy who just is able to, has the financial means, of course, but just the desire to just go... I'm going to I'm going to throw myself in this full bore and get as much as I can out of it, learn as much as I can out of it 
and get what well, I mean, get as much out I can out of it. I'm talking satisfaction wise, not financially and education and right. And, and information wise and soak up all that I can about something. And then, yeah, I'm done. I'm going to do something else. Oh, I thought you were talking about me until the end. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I admire that person too. I admire you too, my friend. <laughs> but uh, yes, thank you for listening and, and, and taking in all these rabbit holes <laughs> and more to come. And thank you to Steve for piecing this all together. <laughs> right on. Enjoy Mark Elmer coming up. Mark Elmer, comma, A-C-E. Yes. Is Mark, you know, Thank you so much for speaking with us and all your preparation and all the work you do. But the first thing I want to know is how do we describe what it is that you do? Do we simply say he's an editor? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say editor is the, is the easiest, simplest term. I don't think that most people necessarily know what that, how that works. Um, I try and describe it to people like I, I, I put together a puzzle. You know, and some puzzles are harder than others, you know, but I take chunks of video and chunks of audio, music, people talking, you know, visuals. I put them together to tell a story. That's ultimately what happens. And like I said, some puzzles are easier than others. Yeah. The, the puzzle with Dave was not an easy one because there was no story. You know, there was never a through, never a through narrative. <laughs> that we could, that I could grab onto and go, okay, this is our track. This is our train track. You know, we're going from point A to point B. There was no A, there was no B. There was just, you know, good storytelling is a beginning, middle and end. Well, and that's... We, didn't have, we didn't have two out of those three. You know, we just had a middle, like often it was just the middle. And, and, uh, and, uh, and you had a cast. Yeah, had a oh, cast heck of yeah. characters. No, absolutely. We had a lot of amazing visuals. We had some great music. But we, he, he loved to, it drove me bananas. He loved to crash into the middle of scenes um, and then never end anything. You know, he wanted to, he wanted to start with something already in progress, you know, and his whole thing was like, Mark, we want to get him to the action. We don't want to spend a lot of time fumfering around trying to figure out what's happening. We want to just go right to the core of it. And like, we're right in the middle of the action, just go and we're in. And then you know, half the time be like, all right, so we're going to, you know, we'll just lay the visuals through until we get to the end. He's like, no, no, no end. We're just going to cut it off. I'm like, what do you mean? We're just going to cut it. Like, we're just going to. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. You know, and so we cut it and then we go to the next thing. And uh, I, eventually I just got frustrated. I was like, Dave, can we end, can we just end one of these? these things can we just take one song and just end it and then start a new one and he's like mark that's exactly what they're expecting us to do and he gave me that big dave grin and then he he went back and sat back on the couch and i was like all right i just here we go this is it you know this is what we do so anyway so that was uh it was quite it was it was a fun ride i'll tell you that much but i i never really knew from time to time what exactly was was going or where we were headed with it it was just a dave said what his vision from the get-go, from the very beginning, is he said, I want somebody, I want it to feel like somebody sitting up late at night flipping channels on TV, but that person's got ADD. <laughs> I was like, we can do that. Yeah. Nailed it. We accomplished that. Did we nail it? it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Wow. And, and, and before I let Steve go, uh, 
almost all movies are not filmed in sequence. They they go, okay, well, um, these three scenes have Hawaiian lays and a Hawaiian set, so we'll film all that together. And then these three take place around the truck, we'll film those together. Any recollection of what the first thing you filmed from that was? Was it the doing martial arts in the middle of a street in a downtown area? I can tell you, I can tell you what we edited first. I can't tell you what was filmed first. I have no idea. Um, I wasn't there for any of the filming. Uh, mm-hmm. Even when they went back, he invited me back for um, the second round of filming. Once he and I had finished the first edit, we'd spent 10 weeks um, putting together the first cut. He 10 said, I music. weeks? 10 weeks. 10 weeks. I think Cecil B. DeMille took maybe half that much doing uh, the Ten Commandments. Well, bear in mind, it's an hour. It's an hour long thing with a lot of really heavy visual editing, you know, a lot of uh, treatments on things, you know, a lot of quick paced stuff. Uh, we changed our minds a lot, you know, I mean, so there there were and, and we were constantly getting new new things in, you know, new ideas, new stuff. So. So, yeah, I mean, there was a it, it, it took time and he wasn't, you know, he's not necessarily a lot of people say he's a perfectionist. I didn't feel perfectionism from him. There was just this sense of experimentation. Like, what if we blank? What if we, blank? you know, how about, how about we try this? You know, how about we try this? And um, it was funny because the people around him, there were always two or three other people from, uh, from his entourage there in the room with us. And uh, it was funny. Every time he said something, what if we try this? He'd say, what do you think guys? And they'll be like, that's amazing, Dave. Let's do that. You know, and on my second or third day, I thought this is this is not healthy for him, you know, because everything he said, they thought was brilliant, you know, and I was like, and so I I, I took a chance early on and I made it I made a, a vow to myself. I'm like, I'm not going to blow smoke, you know, even though I'm a huge Roth fan, I'm I am loving being here. You know, here it is day two. And he's asking my opinion. So I'd be like, what do you guys think about this? Oh, that's amazing, Dave. I love that. That's a great idea, Dave. And I'd be sitting there just editing, like, don't ask me, don't ask me, don't ask me. And he'd say, Mark, what, what do you think? And I'd be like, well, Dave, um, here's what I think. I, I, I don't know if it's going to work because of X, Y, and Z. It feels like it might, maybe it will work if we tried it this way or whatever. And uh, it was funny. He really respected that in the process. Uh, and I felt like that somehow won me some points, you know, with him because I, I was able to be honest and I was able to risk my position you know, to say, this is where we're at, you know, this is what we got. And, and I, I, you know, and, and, you know, half the time he would just ignore what I said anyway and be like, all right, well, let's just do it anyway. And we'll try it, you know? And, and some, it was just like, it was perfect. You know, I loved it. And so uh, it was a very collaborative process. I mean, way more so than probably 90% of the work that I do. He was extremely collaborative. And I was shocked that somebody with a reputation like Dave, uh, you know, would, would come in and say, what do you think? You know, and I'd come up with an idea and I'd say, here's, here's what I think about this. You know, I'd love to try something like this. And he'd be like, all right, give it a try. You know, if he hated it, he hated it, you know, and probably eight times out of 10, he was like, no, we're not doing that. And I was like, okay. You know, but then there was those two times out of 10, he was, he would get super enthusiastic and be like, this is great. I love this. You know, he's like, keep going with that. You got more of that. Can you do, can you do something else like that? And be like, sure. You know, I'm and I'd pull out my bag of tricks. This was bear in mind. This is early on in my editing career. I was maybe six years into my editing career at this point. And, um, 
so I, I, my bag of tricks mainly consisted of stuff I'd seen in music videos and, you know, on television commercials, things like that. I'm like, what if we try this? And he never wanted anything that was conventional or expected or anything I had seen before, anything he had ever seen on TV before. He wanted something completely new, completely different. Um, even if it was jarring, even if it was strange, he wanted jarring and strange. He liked that. That was, uh, you know, plenty of times there were glitches, things would render weird in the system. And he'd be like, what, what is that? What is that? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know, just render weird. I'll re-render. He's like, don't, don't, it's great. Leave it. Can we keep it like that? And I was like, sure, we can, you know, there's like snippets and chunks of video or audio that would pop up occasionally that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't gotten to moving away yet. And he's like, I like that. Keep that. And I'm like, yeah, all right, sure. Let's do that. So. So he really wanted, he really leaned into that idea of the unexpected, the sort of um, behind the scenes kind of thing, um, anything. And he loved that, you know, you see a lot of the behind the scenes thing. I mean, I, I'm thinking of the pirate scene at the end where you see the guys, you know, in the bowler hats, like moving the waves back and forth, all the yes. props and, and as, as the camera's tracking yeah. along, you're seeing all the behind the scenes stuff. You know, you're hearing the, uh, the photographer yelling at people you know, Lozauer, uh, right? That was Neil Lozauer. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. The rock photographer. Yeah. That was Neil. So, uh, so yeah, he loved to have that, that sort of off the cuff kind of goofiness, you know, but with this air of menace, uh, and that, that really didn't come into play until a lot later, but the, uh, all the snipers and the rifles and the guys in the guys in the bowler hats, he told me were, you know, he wanted to do a, like a clockwork orange kind of thing. So it's this oh, goofy, there we go. running around in a pirate, outfit you know with the, the bunnies dressed up you know in these outfits and and jimmy you know the the little person you know drinking and all this kind of stuff it's goofy and then there's this air of menace there's a there's a guy with a sniper rifle off to the side or these guys in the clockwork orange hats you know or there he, he loved that sort of juxtaposition of the goofiness with this sort of like undercurrent of danger so so many things I can say, but I promised yeah. you, a Steve. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, bring it back a bit. I mean, you get hired for this gig and I don't know all that entails, obviously what an editor, how an editor would get started, what, or what the kind of the nuts and bolts of it entails, but you get hired for the gig and you're, I guess you're given what hours of footage. I mean, where do you start? Is there an, does Dave give you an outline? I mean, does it, cause there's no, like, at least there's no linear kind of theme or plot to this yeah. whole thing for years. I'm wondering, am I missing a deeper message here? Yep. You confirmed tonight that I'm not missing a deeper message here. It is just unexpected and wild and random, but I'm wondering if that's the way it always was. Was there some sort of, I mean, how did you know where to go in addition to Dave telling, giving you an idea where to go or besides keep that in there. That looks great. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, it was um, it was very music driven from go. It was uh, his his first pitch to me. And I'll go back and tell you how I got the job in the first place. But his first uh, pitch to me when he came in the first day was like, look, I've made all this music and I need to put something to it. I need a visual treatment to it. I need to take it and put it and present it in some sort of a, a package that has video to it as well. And so he wanted to make this sort of like ADD flipping the channel kind of package that that sort of featured all of these tracks that he had spent time kind of working through and, and, you know, and doing, and he was really, he was really happy with the music that he made and he should be. 
Yeah. I mean, Mean Street was great. I loved oh, and I loved Baker fantastic. Street. I loved all the streets, you know. I, I all the music <laughs> really good. Some of it I wasn't crazy about. Baker Flex Street, was really Baker good. Street. Easy, easy all, Street, Baker Street. Yeah, any Street. of the streets that he did, I was a fan, you know. But um, yeah, it was. And Flex was really good. I liked that one, you know. I was. Uh, we did. He did a. Um, he did a version of Mustang Sally, which I don't think actually appears in the video. It was really good. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, I think it was replaced by living in America. And I'll, I'll tell that story a little bit later. But to get back to your question, Steve, it, it was um, there was no, like I said, there was never a narrative through line. There was never a story. There were vague stories. I think it was Baker Street. Oh, no, no, it was the ELO tune, uh, Shine a Little Love, where uh, he had Jimmy, the little person, kind of stirring up these ingredients in a big hot tub. You know, and and it was like there was this, this sort of craziness, or they were chasing him around. You know, the hot tub. You know, and it was just that it was it was more of a goofiness. He loves that sort of vaudevillian. Yeah, kind of, um, that definitely ran through the whole thing. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Even the um, the the transitional stuff we had a lot of fun with. Uh, the one with it's a picture of him, and I don't know if he drew it. Maybe you guys know because you, you guys have done tons of research. The picture of him and sort of the, the throne with the barbarian winged barbarian helmet with the aviator goggles. And I'm looking at it on my wall. He drew okay, it. Of course you are. Of course you are. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Did he, do, did he draw that? Do you know, Darren? Was that his? Let me walk up to it and see if he signed it in the corner. I'm pretty sure he did. Stand okay. Talk <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if it was fan art or it was his art, but I do know that he does art. And I can tell oh, you. Oh, yeah. Lots. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And he certainly does a lot more art now than yeah. he did back then. But he was even doing it back then. So I'm curious to hear what the uh, what the so, verdict is. It, he, there's no <laughs> signature on it, but I remember I got this because this came with the Mitch Schneider press release, where they okay. sent you two VHS tapes, a a letter on neon color, uh, like a press release thing from Dave, and it was in That's Dave's, so Dave. and it was something like we have no idea what this is and you don't either. What was that? It was one of those things. And that thing on a glossy thing, uh, yeah. glossy yeah, yeah. print. I'm pretty I have one of those somewhere. Oh, yeah, he gave me okay. one. Yeah, he gave me one at one point. So anyway, with that thing, he wanted to use it as a transition. And so he just got in a mic and said, nothing but yeah, which was his catchphrase at the time. Yes. And you know, Dave, he loves to have these little snippets, uh, these little catchphrases, these little things that he uses I don't know what his one is now. I ran into it the other day. He said something. I was like, oh, that's his new, you know, his new, his new catchphrase, but nothing but yeah, was the thing. And he said, can you take the mouth on the, um, you know, the barbarian guy and move it up and down like a puppet, but I don't want it to be like a, I want it to be like a ventriloquism puppet. It should look very clearly like you're moving, you know, it should be moving like somebody's behind there flipping the, you know, the, the lever. I said, yeah, I could do that, <laughs> you know? And so I cut out the bottom of the chin and, and moved it up and down to try and match. And I was like, it doesn't quite match. He's like, no, no, it's great. I love it. You know, and you'll see a couple of places where things are out of sync. You know, it makes me look like a terrible editor, but he <laughs> wanted it. You know, he was like, no, there was one where he actually, he said something on camera. I didn't like the way he said it. So we took it out and he just read it into a microphone and it wasn't, it was just like a very soft match to what his lips were doing on screen. And he was like, no, that's great. Leave it. That's the way it should be. You know, I love it. And I'm like, okay, all right, we're doing that. now. Vaudeville meets bad Japanese dub Kung Fu into English, sort yeah, of. He, <laughs> all of orange. he was like eight years before Tim and Eric and that whole genre of intentionally horrible to amuse you. That, that thing. <laughs> Dave did it first. 
He did. He did. I mean, it was uh, uh, to his credit, it was a mishmash of a lot of things. And it's he is so incredibly intelligent. And let, let me go back and I'll start I'll start with how I got the gig in the first place, um, because, again, I was only like six, six years or so into my career. I'd done some assistant editing on some things and uh, I was editing at the time. I think I'd done a run a season of BattleBots. And <laughs> I was like, I was I was the making of guy. I did the yes. making of Dragonheart. I made the, the making of Daylight. I did the making of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I was like all the, the DVD extras guy. So one day, and I was also teaching at the time in between gigs to Phil, I would teach Avid classes. Avid is the software that we use, um, just like Final Cut Pro or, or Premiere. Mm -hmm. Avid is, you know, what we tend to mainly use. And I, I certainly was, that was my software at the time. So I was teaching classes and I taught this guy named Peter Buell. Um, who I've since lost touch with, but uh, he and I became fast friends and he finished out his classes and he went on to become an editor. And uh, he called me one day and he was just like, dude, dude. And I was like, Peter, what's up? And he said, I am, I am kicking myself because I have this job and I can't take it. And you have to take it. And I was like, all right. Uh, yeah. Hey, I appreciate that. I was, I was actually in between gigs at the time and I was like, fantastic. What is it? He's like, no, no, I can't tell you. I was like, okay. And I'm thinking to myself, is it some sort of like government X-Files CIA? They're like, what's the covert? <laughs> right. Like what in the world? And I'd done a couple of things with celebrities before I did randomly. I was a freelancer and they asked me to come in and one, one night at like eight o'clock and ended up, and they were, it was totally hush hush. And they asked me, I ended up uh, editing uh, a birthday video for Michael Bay. It had like Steven <laughs> Weber and Cuba Gooding Jr. in it. And then, and then they watched me. They had a guy standing over my shoulder while I deleted the footage so that there was no trace of it. After we'd output it, you know, they had somebody stand there and then take the drives away from me. And I'm all right, you know, there, there you have it. So I, I was no stranger to the, like the secret, but it was, it was, it was, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I said, Peter, I'm like, if you really want this, but I'm like, man, what am I getting myself into? You know? So he said, I'm going to have the guy call you. So, you know, sweating it out for about 20 minutes. I get a call from Matt Sensio uh, and Matt, you guys have talked about before on the show, but he was um, he's credited as supervising producer on the project. But from what I remember, he was more managing Dave at the time. He was Dave's manager. Yeah. Yes. And, and so many other things. They were buddies, you know, I mean, they would get up at 4 a.m. to do kendo together and beat the crap out of each other with bamboo swords and, and put on the armor. I mean, they were they 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 were workout buddies. They were, you know, and so he was he was a manager plus, I guess. But I mean, he got supervising producer credit and, to you know, he was he was the guy calling me. I think he was booking a lot of. Stuff like that. So Matt was sort of the sort of the main hinge that a lot of this project swung on and so he calls me up and um he's like hey so and i said so yeah i haven't really heard what the project is he said oh yeah so we'll be doing um is that okay and i my heart just went in my mouth i was like are you kidding me yeah i mean uh, yes of course you know david lee roth was it's um i mean it's cliche to say it it was he was the he was the soundtrack of my childhood of my youth <laughs> You know, so I was so excited and I was like, just and I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, just dude, be cool, be cool, just be cool. I'm like, oh yeah, cool. Okay. So Dave, Dave's doing a thing. He's like, yeah, I'm like, all right, yeah, I'm on board, you know? And so he told me the rate 
And uh, he said, you know, we'll have you start on Monday and uh, we'll have you come in. Here's the facility, you know, here's the info and everything. Olfactory system. So you may want to invest in some unscented deodorant and don't wear any cologne. Don't wear anything that smells. And I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I can do that. No problem. And I think to myself, I remembered all the stories about you know, Van Halen and the brown M&Ms, you know, and I'm thinking this, this could go south so fast. Like, if he's <laughs> making demands like this, like before I'm even on the job, right? what else is coming? You know, what else is going to happen? And uh, so I was, uh, you know, I went straight out and bought myself some unscented deodorant and tell this part too about probably about six weeks, five, six weeks into the, the project, we're working away and uh, we're, we're just hauling. We're, we're, you know, doing good work. And I, I felt good about it, but I hadn't had a chance to do laundry in, because I mean, we were working minimum 14 hour days, 14, yeah. 16 hour days, six days a week. And so I hadn't had a chance to do any laundry. And so one day I was like, just screw it. I'm not going to wear tennis shoes. I'll just wear flip-flops, you know, because I'm an editor. Like, who cares? Like, nobody cares what I put on my feet, you know? So I go in and we're about an hour into the edit and um, they start sniffing. Do you guys smell that? And I'm like, uh-oh. And I'm thinking to myself, here's my brown M&M moment, right? Everything's going to go south. I'm going to lose the gig, you know? And uh, he's like, do you guys smell that? And I'm like, I don't smell anything. And everybody else was like, no, Dave, I don't smell anything, you know? And uh and he's like, he's going around the room and he gets close to my. It's your shoes. And I was like, oh, man, I'm so sorry, Dave. I said I didn't have a chance to do the laundry. I don't, I don't have any socks, you know, and he's like, oh, and I said, maybe it's my feet. My feet might smell. He's like, no, 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 dude, it's your shoes. And he's like, Lenny, go get Mark's shoes and put them outside and then go to my trunk, get out a pair of socks. And Mark will wear my, you know, I'm, I'm giving to Mark and he'll put those on. So I edited the rest of the day with David Lee Roth's socks on. I still have that pair of socks somewhere in my drawer someplace. And uh, people are like, you should sell it on eBay. I'm like, that's not going to, I don't think that's going to get any, any traction on eBay. But um, that was, uh, that was, you know, that was one of the things that, that was one of the adventures that we had, you know, it was one of those days. So. Wow. Uh socks in the trunk okay yeah. what else is in that trunk we don't know but uh the man comes prepared that's what we've learned from that anecdote exactly <laughs> so you got that gig where somebody else wasn't available you were able to take it on but did you did you know outright hey this might be 10 weeks anything like that no it wasn't really i think i had a job coming up at a certain point Either that or no, it wasn't, it was never stated as to what the, the length of it would be. It kind of kept going. Um, and it was, I mean, on my first day I walked in and Dave came in, it was kind of like, it was kind of like a Tomcat circling, you know, trying to scope out the neighborhood. Dave, um, Melissa Reiner said it so well. She said, Dave does not suffer fools gladly. <laughs> and I, I, he was definitely testing me on the first day about what did I know? You know, uh, was I a sharp guy? Was I able to handle, you know, um, what, whatever he threw at me? 
And apparently I passed the tests, you know, which I'm grateful for uh, because we kept on working the second day, the third day, you know, and, and uh, it kept on going. But yeah, it was um, what I didn't know was how hard it was going to be, how much uh, time we were putting in. Like I said, 14 to 16 hour days. We did a 19 hour day at one point. Um, and it was just honestly, the guy is a never ending tsunami of energy. He is it's it's crazy how much energy he has. He would pace behind me while I was editing and not know I didn't make me nervous or anything like that but it was one of those things where he just had this energy to burn he only sleeps like two to three hours a night three to four hours a night something like that he he told me to, to interrupt you because I interviewed him in like oh three which is not too far from then and he explained that he has his like off tour sleep schedule and his touring sleep schedule okay and it's some kind of weird nocturnal thing where I think it's two three hours and then lit like 12 hours later, it's like another two to three hours. It's okay. a cycled sleeping pattern, which is like what Neil Strauss was talking about in his pickup artist book. Uh, absolutely. So, yeah. I think it's, I don't it's understand it. Polyphasic sleep, I think is what it's <laughs> called. Polyphasic, something like that. Wow. Steve, uh, you, you seem like, like a six to eight hour a night kind of guy. You're he not, didn't, he didn't do the two to three hour nap. That's for sure. When, uh, oh, sorry. You froze up for a second there. What'd you say? Yeah. <laughs> I was asking Steve about his sleep patterns. He's not no, a two or three hour guy. I'm, I'm I usually about three, three in the afternoon. I need a quick 15 minutes and then I'm good for the rest of the day. Good man. But, but Mark, you were saying 16 hour days, six days a week. The runtime on this thing is an hour and two minutes, at least according to, believe it or not, IMDB, where there is a page for it. Um, <laughs> but so how much footage were you editing down? I mean, how much do you estimate was shot for this thing? To come to work that long and that much, and there's a lot going on that hour and two minutes. But yeah. I mean, there, there. I can. Only, I, how much footage was there? For goodness sakes, uh, you know it's hard to estimate. I mean, and a lot of stuff was done with stills, as you know too. There's right. there's a lot of stills that he wanted animated. There are a lot of times when they were shooting the actual. You know, they were taking video of the photo shoot, which we were also using in amongst the stills. There was uh, there was a videographer who was there the whole time. There was a guy who was doing eight millimeter film. You'll see some of the eight millimeter film in there. Some of the video we processed to make it look eight millimeter filmic. Um, we did a lot of processing on stuff. There were a lot of layers and a lot of different things. It's really hard to say how much actual footage went into it. If I had to take a stab at it, maybe 10, 12 hours of footage. Wow. You know? um, yeah, I mean, and and as to your question previously, Darren, you were asking about how many takes, you know, kind of things did he do? Yeah. It was rarely more than two, you know, two to three at the most. Oftentimes it was just one thing, you know, if he was doing one of those little uh, bridge scenes, you know, in the car or whatever with the violin and, and things like that, it was like one or two. And, you know, he was happy with that. And he usually nailed it because he, I don't know if he rehearsed it before the camera started rolling or whatever, but or if he's just that good and maybe he is, you know, and he um, nearly always nailed it. And there were times when you have like two takes and they both be right. And he'd say, ah, I like this one. Cause I like the way the clouds look in the background, or I like, you know, I like the way that Jimmy had his finger up his nose, you know, at that point or just dumb, you know, whatever, not dumb, but you know, just random stuff that I was like, all right, we're going to use that one. Let's go for it. So. Wow. So did the music get spliced in afterwards? The music was always the bed that we used to cut to. So we would start with the track. Um, and in most cases, we would start with the track. 
And then we would layer visuals over the top of it. Sometimes we would edit the, the music to, you know, add an extra, you know, bit or an extra, you know, um, chorus, or we would take some out, you know, or we would just like Dave liked to do, just cut it off, you know, and, and randomly yeah. in the middle of it. Um, but there was one part that uh, I think you, you probably remember if you've seen it, but uh, Neil, it's Neil Zlozauer who actually says, Arnold, get the fuck up. Yes, yes. And, and we, and uh, so I'd been saying pieces of audio that um, love to throw stuff in. He loved to throw just random bits and pieces in. And I learned early on, I'm like, okay, well, I need to have sort of a bank of these things. So I was saving them off as they went. Um, and that one, I was like, hey, Dave, look what I found. You know, and it's just Neil yelling at this poor guy in a gorilla suit, you know, Arnold, <laughs> Arnold, get the F up, you know. And so he, uh, he, and I played it for him. He loved it. You know, and he's like, oh, that's great. We got to fit that in somewhere. And I was like, okay. And he said, uh, the next thing I want to work on is this, um, it's a Chemical Brothers track. You know, oh, yes. and, oh. and, uh, and I want to put down uh, some stuff in there. And I was like, hey, how about we start with Arnold, you know, and uh, and let me you know what I said, give me a half an hour. And he said, OK. And he left. Uh, and so I started I started chopping up the audio and using little bits and pieces and taking from that bank of things that I'd used. He's at one point he says, uh, not you, Jimmy, you know, and he's like, everybody look up there. Not you, Jimmy, you know, and, and just like, little, can we get security in here? You know, a couple of just quotes from Dave, quotes from Neil, uh, you know, quotes from different people just talking. And uh, so I cut it up and, and made it into this little like stutter cut sort of techno feel thing. And I cut it to the Chemical Brothers track and he came back and I showed it to him and he loved it. Yeah. Again, another example of like, that's how collaborative he is. He was willing to just let somebody else take the reins for a bit and um, make something fun, you know, and I had a blast making it. And so we put, you know, all the gorilla footage over it from the, you know, with the shoot and then the stills and things like that. So it wasn't always music first. Sometimes it was just an idea that, you know, we created and, and built something out of that. So it, it all sounds like it was a, an amazingly creative opportunity for you. I mean, you were pulling every trick out of the book there and I having a blast doing it. I really, really was. It was, it was a, it was a wild ride and I loved it. I, I, was, I mean, I'd work with him again in a heartbeat. It was, um, it was a lot, a lot of fun. It was, um, yeah, I mean, it never ended. It was exhausting. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Just his energy all the time and 16 hour days or 14 hour days or whatever we did in that given week, you know, and it was, um, but yeah, it was great to, to be that great. This is early on um, in the days of Avid Software. It was only like six, seven years old at this point. You know, and the fact that we were taking stills and shrinking them down into, you know, trying to make, and making cars and making them do low rider moves, you know, and things like that. Or, or um, one point, at one point he was like, hey, can you take a still and shrink it down? I want to do like, uh, it was for Mustang Sally at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, can you take a, a still and shrink it down and just make a roadway out of it, like with cars going by, out of these stills, like the stills will be cars. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. So I made a roadway and had cars going by. And I was like, hey, what if I have one? Changes lanes. He's like, oh, that's cool. I'm like, great. I was like, oh, what if we have like a cop car come by and we'll just make it flash this still, you know, that way well, it'll flash like blue and red. He's like, yeah, I like that. I'm like, what, what if I shrink one down into a little line and I have it go over the top like a helicopter, like a traffic copter? He's like, oh, that's great. You know, I'm like, what if we have an accident? You know, and all the, the stills crash into each other and like they make a, there's a big pile up in the middle of this freeway. He's like, yeah, that's, you know, so we just kind of kept building and building and building off this idea. And then he wanted to make low riders, you know, like 
moving their way across the screen and these two cars racing. And so we, we really did it. We had a lot of fun. Like, see, never seen that before. Have you? I was like, I have not ever. No, I have not. <laughs> so did another one, another moment like that was um, in the very beginning, we were doing flex. Um, we did that, the, the scenes with him, you know, doing the martial arts with the swords and stuff like that. And he was great. He'd always tell me what the, um, what the moves were that he was doing. He'd be like, all right, this one. And he said, and this move is where you shake the blood off the sword. And, uh, you know, before you put it back in the, in the sheath. And I'm like, oh, all right, this is cool. And so I was, from my limited knowledge of doing, you know, anything like this, I was like, okay, it's a music video, right? We're going to cut it on the beat. You know, one, two, three, boom, one, two, three, boom, one, two, three, boom. And he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I just, I don't know. I just thought that was a good place to cut. He's like, I don't, I, is, you know, is that wrong? He's like, you can't cut it on the beat. He's like, that's exactly what they expect you to do. I was like, oh, all right, well, let's, you know, he said, just, just cut it random, you know, just whenever the visuals tell you, you end it when it should end, you know, just cut it random. So I cut it random. And then like every sixth beat, it would hit or get close to hitting on that. And he didn't like that. He was like, no, 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 it can't hit. You don't understand. It can't hit on the beat. And I was like, all right, well, what do you want to do? He's like, just, just turn the music off, just turn it off and just edit it without the music and, you know, make the edits that way. And so I made all the edits. And, we, and he's like, now turn the music back on. And we played it. And he was like, see, he's like, we have just invented a whole new style of editing. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, we have. I, um, I, I cannot argue with that. So when he's doing all that, sorry to cut you off, Mark. No, I've a lot of people I've spoken with who had direct hands on stuff with Dave was be like, oh, he's in the character 100 percent of the time. And other people go like. No, no, he's never in character. He's quick with his lines, but he breaks. Is he in Diamond Dave mode, like even 10%? Or is he just being Dave? High energy. Yeah, he's very high energy. He doesn't ever lose the energy, uh, honestly. He gets, he has an intensity uh, about him, this real hawk-like intensity that I think people misinterpret as, as angry Dave or whatever, but like he gets really focused um, at times. And uh, I think that if you interpret it incorrectly, you know, you could feel like he's angry at you or whatever, but um, he is always very high energy. He's always cracking jokes. He was always saying nothing but yeah, you know, or all his catchphrases, <laughs> all his goofy little Dave-isms. He used them constantly, he had that big grin on his face all the time, you know, and there were a couple of moments where, um, like I realized I had this really unique opportunity um, in working with him. Like who gets the chance? to spend 10 weeks in an edit bay with David Lee Roth, you yeah. know? So um, I, I was to answer the original question, people would always say, well, is he on drugs? And I'm like, no, because they see the video and they think, oh, he's got to have been like on some sort of like, you know, some kind of hallucinogenic or something. I'm like, no, he is not on drugs. Well, that's not true because he smoked a ridiculous amount of weed. During that the time. is a constant thing that comes up in interviews. Yes. <laughs> a, a, a lot of weed we would. Yeah. And so that that was and i think he does it honestly i think he does it just to keep himself at a human level of energy i think he needs it just to bring himself down so that he can interact with everybody else on a level that's not so you know so frenetic 
um, we take a break, you know, around lunchtime or whatever, you know, and uh, he would do it for me. It wasn't for him. It was for me. He'd be like, Mark, you look tired. Let's go take a break. I want to make sure I'm not burning you out, you know, whatever. And um, so we'd go outside and he'd smoke. And I thought I'd been reading this book by uh, it's called Finding Common Ground um, by a guy named Tim Downs. And the whole idea is when you're in a situation with somebody that is in completely different from you, um, how do you find a connection point? How do you connect with this person? So serendipity, I'm reading this book at the same time. You know, I read it just before I started this project. I'm like, I couldn't be more different than Dave. But is ask questions. Just start asking questions. Get super curious about the person. So, and this is answering your, your original question, was he always on? Um, I asked him some pretty deep questions. I'd be like, Dave, are you, so tell me, have you, have you ever been in love? You know, uh, do you, do you believe in God? You know, I just, I just peppered him with questions. Tell me more about that. Like, well, what's that all about? You know? And, uh, he would get pretty serious and we would have these great, like serious in-depth conversations, you know, and I got the impression that people didn't talk to him like this very often. So it was a really neat yeah. opportunity for me to just kind of go behind the curtain a little bit and, and see what makes this guy tick. You know, it was, a, it was a lot of fun. It was a really, really cool experience. So. So Mark, when you were doing all this, did he, was there any, did he ever give you any idea of what was going to happen to it? What he was going to do with the finished product? Because thank goodness for YouTube, this was long rumored, the videotape, the, the VHS copies that went out in a press kit ended up on eBay when eBay, yeah. you know, first took off. But if it wasn't for YouTube, this would just be a mystery. He oh, yeah. never gave you any indication. I mean, it sounds like a very expensive art project. And to go back to IMDb, it says the budget was a million dollars, which could be anyone's guess. But clearly, uh, you know, as many weeks for an editor, whatever that might cost can't be cheap. And then with everything else, you know, the filming and the production on this, this wasn't just some sort of a college, you know, film school vanity project. Clearly not. No. And the short answer to your question is he didn't know um, because I kept asking him, I thought, you know, how am I ever going to prove to my friends that I, I did, you know, I did something like this, right. you know, we're going to find it, you know, and uh, he, he didn't know. And so I was as surprised as anybody when he started touring with St. Hagar. And the footage. You know, tables. I think I was, it was for sale at the merch tables at the Sammy Hagar and in, in Roth yeah. concerts. And so uh, I was like, oh, great. You know, it's finally going to be a thing. And um, but yeah, as far as budget goes, he wasn't uh, he wasn't super spendy. Um, as far as the he my like the rate for me was a little lower than I normally would have had, but I was happy to take it. And we sure. more than made up for it in overtime. Like it was, you know, anything, you know, I was explained to him like, well, Dave, you know, it's 10 hour day overtime after 12 double over, you know, double overtime after 12. And, you know, it's just, it's going to rack up. He was like, it's okay. You know, he said, you're worth it. You know, this is good. Let's do it. Let's keep going. It's like, great. You know? And then we would, um, As we were editing, we had a stack maybe four or five feet high of components next to us. There were DAT players, there were VHS players. He was pulling in media from all different places. And um, he wanted VU meters, he wanted spectrometers, you know, he wanted all sorts of things. Um, and the facility was happy to kind of keep giving it to him. You know, at a certain point, he he looked at the he looked at the balance sheet and was like, oh wait, you know, we're spending a lot of money on just having these all these things here. And so he went and he made a deal with them, or they made a deal with him. I don't know how. If when Van Halen 
reunites, if they ever reunite, we want front row tickets to a one show here in LA. And he said, done, you know, and uh, everybody at that point, you know, is still a big toss up. Nobody knew if that was ever going to happen, you know, and sure enough, it came about, you know, they did the different kind of truth tour. And uh, I hope those guys got their tickets, you know, at the end of the day, but he was, he was budget conscious. I know he, he went back. So after I finished the project, eight weeks or something like that. And I was like, I, I'm a freelance. So I'm like, I, I, I got to take something if it comes up, you know, I can't, I can't just wait and hope, you know, that, right. that you'll be back around. He didn't even know when it was going to be. He said, if you're available, we'll grab you, we'll do it. And they called after, you know, six, eight weeks. And I was already on another project, unfortunately, but that's when they went and shot all the stuff that you see, um, all the underground tunnel stuff, which I know he spent a lot of money on, you know, flooding the tunnels, there was sand in the tennis courts, yeah. you know, there was, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff, the giant um, boombox set, yeah, all yeah. that stuff that was set to techno, the, the techno tracks, um, that was all shot after me. I did about, of the hour of it, I probably did 40, 45 minutes of that was the work that I did. And then they went off and shot all that other stuff. And then uh, when they came back, they brought another editor on and uh, ended up finishing it out with him. So I was bummed. I would have loved to have done it, you know, but I also needed to make rent. So, but, but I got to pause you there. You spent 10 weeks on this. Then they shot more and had to edit that. So he spent more time on this project than probably most of his albums. Some of the Van Halen albums, in fact, this was his longest term thing that he didn't even really promote. And he basically killed off until he re-uploaded it to YouTube. I don't, I don't want to call it a vanity project, given how much uh, effort went into it. But it's kind of a mystery how much energy went into it, yet how quickly it got buried. Yeah. And I'm not sure what that was about. You know, I'm not sure. I think he wanted to do it. He was excited about it. You know, Dave, he loves to learn. Like he yeah. learns, he's constantly learning new things. You know, the whole EMT experiences and what he's, he's painting now. He's training sheepdogs for crying out loud. He learned <laughs> to, you know, rock climb for, you know, living in paradise. You know, I mean, he, he's, he taught himself, I don't know if he taught himself. He, he learned classical guitar, you yeah. know, all of these kind of things that, that he. He, uh, and so he actually really immersed himself in the suspicion that because he never got to do the film that was promised to him, the crazy from the heat film. Um, I think that he was really enjoying being a, a, a big part of the post-production process. I think he was really enjoying learning about editing and, and kind of making those creative decisions and sort of building something from the ground up. Like literally when we started, it was a handful of music tracks, you know, about 10,000 stills and, you know, a, a bunch of video and, 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 and um, super eight footage, you know, and so I think he was really enjoying the creative process of seeing these things come together, seeing them be made from scratch. You know, uh, I think that was fun for him. And at one point he actually asked me, he's like, hey, Mark, what do you think about uh, like if at the end for the credits, if we say edited by Mark Elmer and David Lee Roth, what do you think about that? And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, well, Dave, usually, you know, the guy in my chair is the editor and the guy. 
making all the creative decisions and kind of doing all the producing stuff like that is either the producer, executive producer, or the director. You know, even though they are making those creative decisions, I actually know the software and you know those things. And he was like, "All right, all right, that's cool. That was cool." You know, and that was it. That was the end of, end of discussion. So I was asking Darren if you ever find the, the VHS, I'd love to know if uh, if you know the credits ended up having him as editor or not. I don't think he did. I think he was respectful of uh, of my explanation. He seemed like he was. So, so something you just said, Mark, I got to repeat it for Steve here. Crazy from the heat. This might have been his attempt at crazy from the heat. This might have been his 20 years later. I never got to make a movie. I want to make a movie. What do you think of that, Steve? Um, yeah, I mean, as far as getting that Jones out of the way and learning everything, I think that maybe was the goal all along. I mean, Mark, you brought up interesting how, you know, the guy was constantly learning, wanting to learn new skills. I mean, I would bet as much as getting in front of the camera and doing all that stuff, creating it, the editing, working with you side by side, like you said, it seemed like he was having a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, just immersing himself all this. Because if we know one thing about Dave is that when he's when he he doesn't just dip a toe in, man, he is diving in. Yeah, he's yeah. gonna he's gonna go full bore into it, whether or not it's successful doesn't matter. You yeah. know, and I think that's from rocket climbing. Uh, rocket. Uh, that's probably next. Rock climbing. Yeah, rock climbing. You know. <laughs> To the you know we learned from uh, we learned from the guy uh, from the woman who trained him as an EMT. I mean, just from people he's worked with. So I mean, it's it's definitely a unique uh, and different kind of work ethic. I mean, he, he's going to satisfy that Jones, uh, but it's no matter how long it takes. I think, which is interesting. Yeah. I I got a question for you. You mentioned early about uh, the uh, the song "Living in America" that there was a story about that. Oh, which just I sense- I'd completely forgot about that song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, just in the sense that it originally was Mustang Sally. I'm pretty sure, with 95% sure, that he did a version of Mustang Sally. I don't know if it was a rights issue, a publishing issue, or however it worked out, but I don't remember just having gone back and watched uh, No Holds Barbecue again. Um, <laughs> I don't remember hearing Mustang Sally. I was like, we edited to that. And I thought it was that Cars thing that we did. And then I was like, now that was over living in America. And I'm like, wait, I don't know if that, I don't know if we, you know, that came in, that must've come in later. I must've put that in towards the end or something like that. So, um, and you can confirm for me, there was no Mustang Sally in, in No Hoods Barbecue. There was no Mustang Sally. And yeah. I remember when, when Roth was on Mark Marin, he talked about Dan Hartman being one of his favorite songwriters, Dan Hartman being the writer of living in America. Okay. So that would kind of check out right there yeah there you go okay fair enough yeah so that was also wrote easy street i think say again dan hartman also wrote easy street oh yeah okay fair enough yeah did did we lose you mark yep sorry oh there we go froze up there there. you go there you go. So, so Steve, did I hijack that question? No, no, no. It was, it was interesting. It stood out because that was around, I, when I think back to that song, I forgot it was in No Holds Barbecue, but I remember, I remember put, putting that song in my mind in another place hearing it. But for some reason, I, I think that was, because this is around the same time when he was going to, when uh, he was looking at doing, the, well, he did the very short-term Vegas thing, right? With uh, the Mambo Slammers or going in and doing the studio version of Ice Cream Man and all that. So this is, the early aughts right about this time frame. So it kind of tracks in my mind music musically, as far as different songs, he was uh, messing around with, I think. Gotcha. Yeah. He really, he, I mean, really branched out. I think this is the start of him really moving into different genres of music. I mean, he, he really spread. I was surprised 
you know, at some of the stuff he had come up with. I was like, oh, this doesn't, this is not your thing, you know? He was always fascinated with, I mean, at this time, and uh, Django Reinhardt, you know, I was like, man, uh, you know, and he he would come in and he was like, he was like a Wikipedia article. He was like, hey, have you ever heard of Otmar Liebert? I'm like, I don't know who that is, Dave. You know, come on, it's gypsy music. Come on, you never heard of Omar Liebert? I'm like, nope, no idea. You know, and he'd be like, you got to go home and listen to that. I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll do that. And I went home and, and he, I'd come back the next day and he'd be like, what'd you think? And I'm like, yeah, it's not my thing. You know, I'm like, I like your music. Like, I, I you know, I'm a Van Halen fan. I'm like, I don't, sure, you know, gypsy music is great, you know, if that's your thing, but it wasn't my thing, you know. Yeah looking back on it you're right when you bring up as far as him really first starting to get into different types of music because when i listen to that song flex and some of the other incidental music and music that we know was recorded that has come out since if he did a record all like flex people would back then early aughts people would have been blown away oh yeah i mean he wouldn't i mean he would have been ahead of his time as far as a rock guy a veteran rock guy doing something like that i think whether or not it would have been you know received by fans another thing but as far as i mean you know, he was dabbling in techno and dance stuff. And he later talked about just recently, the last few years in interviews, how much he loves dance and house music. But that was nothing new. He'd been digging that 20 years ago. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, th there was the story of one of the Van Halen reunion tours where I think it was Alex that said something like, well, three out of the four of us like rock music and one of us doesn't. <laughs> and when you think about it, the guy did just a gigolo yeah. that early. Was Dave not listening to rock music since like 1978? Very possible. Hey, you he know. does say he took Eddie to an Earth, Wind and, Earth, Wind and Fire concert in, uh, to the L.A. Forum back when they were, you know, barely in high school, just out of high school. So, I mean, he always loved the dance stuff. And he was never, you know, when you look at the covers they did as, as uh Van Halen, I mean, they were covering Casey and the Sunshine Band and different yeah. pop stuff. I mean, so he you could never pigeonhole him as just a straight on rock screamer. That's for sure. Yeah, no, that's for sure. But further kudos go to Mark because I made him, I made Mark rewatch the No Holds Barred. <laughs> and I said, Mark, what's the deal with the blurred face? And we don't have to talk at length about why that is, but the YouTube version has a blurred face out in a certain scene. And that led to the further Roth mystery of why is Bart Walsh's face blurred out? We don't know what happened there. So re-watching this opened up so many mysteries for me. <laughs> like, who is that harmonica player, Sam? Is, is it Dave wearing like a mustache and a hat in a cutaway shot? Like, you know, the way that Mario is... Uh, Wario is Mario and the Nintendo thing with a weird mustache. I, I don't know what that is. So still so many unanswered questions. I don't know who would even know this stuff. No, I don't know either. I mean, Dave might be the only one with the answers to those questions. I, I can guarantee you that 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 uh, that that harmonica player was not Dave. <laughs> you know, I know that was one of your more out there theories, but that wasn't Dave. I guarantee you the camera actually will pan over, you know, from Dave to this guy. Dave walks out of frame. Oh, it's not true. He walks out of frame. But it would have been an awfully quick change to get the beret on and the sunglasses and the harmonica out. I don't I don't think even Dave, I don't think he could have pulled that off. Yeah. So there there's questions about that. One thing. This is a really obscure question right here. The scenes when they're dancing in the studio and they're also dancing in the hallway of his house and they're also dancing in the boombox set. 
Now, I know you weren't there for the boombox set, but the speed of the dancing is different than the tempo of the music that we're hearing. So any idea of what he was using as placement or, you know, temp music? No clue. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it clearly wasn't the same music, you know, but but no, I don't know what they were using to, uh, to, to as temp in, in the background. Be, because I have a direction-oriented uh, question with that. And my question is that Dave... There was a story that came out about two years ago that Dave was dying to collaborate with the Chemical Brothers. And he sent a video of him and his people dancing to a Chemical Brothers song and went, we could do this. And they just laughed and went, no. And <laughs> I was wondering if it was block rock and beats or something like that, that they were dancing to as the temp music. And that was that. But I guess we'll never know. That's a good question. Yeah, I have no idea. I know he, he really enjoyed the Chemical Brothers. Um, he had a couple of their uh, albums that he had in there and we were listening to them as we went. So and we actually used one of them. I don't know if it got swapped out, but Arnold, uh, which he wanted to use as the name of the song, Arnold, get the F up. You know, he wanted to make that. He's like, that's the and that's now the name of the song. I'm like, great. OK. But it was like it was a Chemical Brothers tune that we originally cut it to. And I'm trying to remember, I think we had to swap it out for something else and I had to kind of re-edit and shift things around to match so wow poor Arnold did you did you ever see anyone that you worked with on this project after this or is this a 10-week summer camp immersion kind of experience and that was it, it it was exactly that yeah yeah I mean mostly it was honestly it was Dave and I um Lenny Messi was there who was the uh production manager he was there nearly all the time and there were a couple other people that sort of floated in and out. You know, it was funny because we were at this facility and we were sort of way in the back of the facility and Dave would kind of come in early in the morning and, you know, with his sunglasses and his hat on and he would kind of go in the back. And without fail, at least three times a week, we would have random people knocking the door with a package. Be like, uh, I have a package for, um, for this that was supposed to go to this suite. Uh, and there you could see him kind of peering in through the door and trying to get a trying to get a lane. And Dave was always sitting sort of behind the door. So when you opened it, he was he was back there, you know, and every single week we would have people come in and try and kind of, you know, and it was it was always something like, you know, a package address or to, to resident or something like that. Like, I was supposed to deliver this uh, package, you know, it's like, all right, sure, buddy. They were like, thanks. See you later. So, so, but I mean, it was, it was cool. There was the buzz there, you know, that something was going on and David Lee Roth was in the building every day. And one day we went to, um, we went to Subway, like we'd get lunch every day and we were just, you know, we walked down to Subway and, you know, he's got his hat on his ponytail and he's got his sunglasses on and he's ordering at Subway and I'm standing behind him in a line. And I'm like, do you people not know who this is? You know, and I'm like, David Lee Roth ordering like the Italian sub, the six inch on white, you know, and I'm like, you're kidding me. You know, it's just <laughs> one of those scenarios that was so surreal. Here I am, you know, with David Lee Roth at a subway, you know, it was just, it was a, it was a crazy experience all the way around. It was such a blast. So Animal wasn't around? No, very few. None of the people that were from set, none of the band. Wow. Um, I think some, there were some music execs, one or two that stopped by at one point. Sensio was around, Matt Sensio was around for the first week or two just to make sure things were running smoothly. But then I got the sense that they had other business that they were working on, hmm. you know, and Matt was back at Dave's house working on that. And uh, at one point, Dave said, hey, uh, I've got a gazebo at my house. He's like, what do you think if I get an Avid and we set you up to edit in my gazebo? This is about six, seven weeks in. And I'm thinking to myself, 
please God, let me edit in David Lee Roth's gazebo. I never got to go to his house. I would have loved to have done that, but I never got the chance to. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was just the whole thing was, uh, was just a, an adventure. It was a roller coaster. So uh, uh, full, full disclosure here, Steve, I didn't tell you this. So I had time to kill when I was in Los Angeles a week and a half ago before my flight, I was taking a midnight flight and my friend goes, well, we got a couple hours. Where do you want to go? And I said, Oh, let's, let's see uh, Eddie Van Halen's childhood home. Oh, okay, cool. Oh, uh, where else do you want to go? Mm. Oh, if we're in Pasadena. Yes. Uh, Dave's house is like 14 foot fences. It's meant to keep out people like me. <laughs> and clearly it did. It did, right? It didn't. It kept me out, but you, okay. uh, you can't see any of that house. He is really in his own bubble as the stories go. Sorry, I dropped out for a second. I think it's my internet. Well, the, the, the bottom line is he kept me off of the property. <laughs> and uh, uh, he kept you effort. off of the property, too. There was no gazebo time for you. No, I was invited for that second shoot. And uh, I just, uh, I, you know, it was, uh, I couldn't make it for whatever reason. And I'm kicking myself. That was one of my two regrets from the actual project was um, when I first came on, you know, I was telling my friends about it. And they're like, dude, you've got to be cool. Like, don't ask for autographs. Don't ask for pictures. Like, just be cool. Right. Almost like you don't even know who he is. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try not to fanboy out, you know, and do my thing. And, and, um, and I never, even at the end of the project, cause there was the, there was a general sense of like, originally I thought it was going to be like a couple of weeks. And he was like, I'm going to, you know, we're going to shoot some stuff and we'll be back. So it was just like, well, I'll take a couple of weeks, you know? And, and, uh, and so I, I didn't, I never, we said goodbye, but it was never, I didn't get a picture with him. I never got his autograph. And I'm kicking myself now. I would have loved to have had a picture with him. And he totally would have been down for it. He was so generous with that kind of stuff. As a matter of fact, um, there was a girl who was in my theater company. And uh, she I was, uh, she found out that I was working with Dave. And, and she said, look, um, she said, I hate to ask this. She said, my brother, his name is David. He's a massive David Lee Roth fan. He wore his hair like Dave in, in high school. You know, he just, he's, he's a huge Dave fan is there any way you could get his autograph? And I was like, you know what? And this is about five, six weeks in. I was like, and I could tell he was fine with it. At this point, he trusted me and he knew I wasn't going to, you know, be weird about it. And so uh, I went out and I bought the um, 1984 remastered and uh, a CD and I brought it in. Point, stopping point. I was like, hey, Dave, thing. And he's like, I got it. And he just grabbed it. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And he, you know, I, I, uh, there's a guy named, his name is David. I told him the story. He's like, all right, cool, cool, cool. You know, and he set it down next to him. And I'm like, uh, he's going to forget or like, and then we got into editing and we're editing and like two hours go by. And he taps me on the shoulder and I spin around. And he's like, here you go. And he hands me the CD. And I'm like, thank you, man. I really, really appreciate it. Like, no, 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 open it up. It's like, all right. So I open it up. And he's like, look at this original artwork by David Lee Roth. And he had drawn like a whole seascape with like boats and palm trees. And like, you know, there's, there's some space in the back of the album. There's some white space. And he had taken a Sharpie and he had just covered it with art. And then he signed it to David, you know, my biggest fan, something like that, blah, 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 David Lee Roth. And I was like, dude, he, this guy is gonna, he's gonna blow an artery. This is amazing. And uh, he was so proud, you know, he's like, yeah, you know, and now he has original art by David Lee Roth. And I'm like, this is so cool. 
you know? And so now I'm kicking myself. I never got original art by David. Lee Roth, you know, <laughs> I just would have loved to have it hanging around the house. You so. just helped him create it. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> the, so. the, the raw thing reminds me of the Bill Murray stories with the, like, yes. you'll never believe these things that these so run-ins that people have with Dave. And it's always seems like he's more in touch with the people who don't like his music than the people who are the diehards. So that's the rare story I've heard where he's like happy to see a 1984 album. It's true. Well, here's another one. Yeah, actually, they told me a story one time where they uh, there was a long line of people to sign albums. And uh, and because they were joking, I think this, this was because I brought in the 1984 album. And um, they said, yeah, well, at least you brought in the right album. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, it wasn't too long ago, Dave was signing CDs at a table and some guy brought him 5150. Said, hey, and not knowing, like he had no clue. It wasn't like he was trying to be malicious or weird or anything like that. He just didn't know. And they were like, get out of here. You know, they kicked him out of line and, and it was just like a whole thing. But so the guys at the facility that we were working at, the two guys that owned it and uh, a bunch of the other techs and stuff like that, that were helping us out with equipment and getting all the components that Dave needed and stuff. Um, it was towards the end of our run. It was like week nine or it was, it was maybe even week 10, like in the middle of week 10. Um, one night they said, Hey, we're going to have a little, uh, we're going to have a little jam session, sort of a little mini rap party. We're not done yet, but you know, we're wrapping up this part. We may be at a different facility next time. These guys have been cool to us. He ordered a ton of food there and we took us, we went into this big warehouse room. There was a stage and he got up and jammed for like 20 minutes with these guys from the, the tech guys, the owners like would get on there, like doing their best impression of Eddie on the guitar, you know, and they sang Amazing. Panama and that was, and, and was a guy at keyboards, you know, and they just had a blast doing this. And that's just, that's the kind of guy that he was. That's the kind of guy that was my experience of him was that he was really great about stuff like that. And he really just enjoys jumping in and doing, you know, crazy things. So. Uh, Steve, I have one more question, but before I ask it, do you, Anything we missed from your checklist? Uh, you, Mark, you covered, <laughs> I learned so much more about what has been like the biggest mystery rabbit hole for me over the years is just being a huge fan. We joke around about, we joke a lot about the, the video, but I mean, it really is unique and really cool. That's really the bottom line. You can call it weird, which plenty of people do. You can call it just bizarre, which plenty of people do. But as far as now we know why it looks the way it does, which ultimately it looks super fucking cool. So thank you for shedding a lot of light on this for us and uh, giving us amazing insight. Yeah, my pleasure, man. It's, it's, it's wild that something, I mean, I had to spend a lot of time thinking back because this is 20 some years ago. Yes. I mean, you know, right. another question, I think it was 2000 for me, like uh, when Melissa and the band were shooting, that was, that might've. 2001, but for me, it was either, it was either late 99 or mid 2000, somewhere in there for me when we were editing, um, because I was engaged at that point to my wife. And I kept saying, Hey, come on by and meet Dave. She's like, nah, nah, nah I don't want to be that person. I'm like, really? No, it's David Lee Roth. How many chances do you get? She's like, no, nah, I don't, I just don't want to be the fangirl like hanging around the door. I'm like, totally get it. So. Wow. Well, my last question, unless Steve has anything to, to ask is that I find in the entertainment business that work leads to work. This gig leads to that gig. Maybe that wasn't the best gig, but you met somebody on that gig who remembered you. And then, you know, seven years later, they call you, et cetera, et cetera. Did No Holds Barbecue ever 
lead to anything in your career on any level except for doing this podcast? <laughs> uh, honestly, only in maybe an indirect sense that I wouldn't know about. I mean, it's on my resume. It's in my edit reel. You know, I'm, I'm, and, and it's, uh, it's one of those things that I, I'm like, people will occasionally comment on it when they see my resume. I'm like, really? David yeah. Lee Roth, tell me about that. You know, and I'll tell them some of the stories and stuff like that. And they're like, that's crazy. And I'm like, I know. And, uh, but I don't know that it ever led to, because I mean, if you, have you seen the video, right? There's nobody else that wants to make something like that. Right. So why would they pick the guy like, oh, you made that? Yeah, we want that guy. You know? It's like, no, this guy. Well, to, to, to the beginning, middle and end to pause that thought. Yeah. Like a, a lot of people that I interview, they'll like, if you talk to like Greg Bissonette, he'll play know. on anybody's album. And a lot of people will be like, well, I want the guy who worked with David Lee Roth. So in, there could be, you know, some chic in, in the middle East who goes, I want David Lee Roth's editor guy. And it could have been you. Could have been. Yeah. And someday that may happen up until now, uh, if it has happened in that sense, I have no idea. I think the, uh, the thing that. There's a lot of pressure. There's a, we're all exhausted. You know, it was, it was, like I said, it was early on in my career. I learned to handle celebrity. I learned to handle um, a lot of crazy demands, you know, and things like that. And, and it was, and, and to take things in stride, to be collaborative, to always have a positive attitude, you know, whatever I went into. And I've gotten to work with some amazingly creative people, you know, and I, I think that's in no small part from the lessons that I learned as a result of that project, you know, and carried that with me for sure. I'm, I'm yeah. out of questions. I, <laughs> I, just, I can't believe all the amazing information we got and how generous you've been with your time, Mark. Oh, absolutely. No, it's my pleasure, you guys. It was really, uh, it's, it's been fun to kind of dig back into it and, uh, and share about it. I, I mean, like I said, I tell people the stories occasionally. You know, I'll tell the socks story and people are like, no way, you've got, to, you know, it's like, I, not only did I carry... away all that you know the, the good work ethic and uh, mojo dojo hats the round ones you know that flip up you can see him in some of the uh some of the video shoots that he does he's wearing a mojo dojo hat he gave me one unfortunately didn't fit so uh i still have it someplace i think along with his socks but um but yeah it was fun to kind of dig back into all that stuff and to be able to kind of remember and tell somebody you know i've got all these stories kind of circulating around you know and i usually only get to tell one or two of them so to kind of like just lay it all out there for you guys is, and and the fact that you guys love it so much and enjoy it you know and, well it it's and can enjoy it with me that i appreciate that i mean a lot it's safe for posterity now for the dlr cast so you can point your friends and family to uh uh, to the full story fr from you right here at this podcast. So absolutely. I can say, Hey, you know what, if you don't believe me, go listen to the podcast. <laughs> and I couldn't uh, just make all that stuff up. Is there a best way to track you? If people want to learn more about you on the internet? Sure. Yeah. If people want to get a hold of me, uh, they're welcome to, uh, mark It's Mark with a C mark, is my editing website. 
and uh, I've uh, you'll you can see my reel, and it's got a little you know tongue in cheek reference to Dave there about how I can handle your project because you know I spent ten weeks in a edit bay with this guy, and um, you know it's it's got little snippets of, uh, of of the the video in there and a bunch of the other stuff that I've done, and you can contact me from that site. And then I just launched um, I've just gotten into uh, voiceovers. I've been doing it for about three years. I've been training in voiceover. And uh, because for years I do temp tracks for the shows that I was on and people will be like, oh, you know what? This is really good. Then let's now let's hire a professional to come in and do it. You know? And like, we'll pay them a lot of money. So uh, <laughs> I ended up starting doing voiceover and uh, I've got a little bit of traction at it. So I just put up a website, which is uh, markelmervoiceovers.com, um, which uh, will ha- has all my demos and all the things that, uh, that I've been working on, which I'm really proud of. So. I'm not saying this to suck up, but about 15 minutes ago, just listening to you talk, I, it dawned on me. I'm like, this guy's got a radio voice. He's got yeah. a kind of, I can hear that. I was I just in the back of my head. I'm like, I wonder if he's ever, ever done voiceovers. Now you answer no. the question I hadn't really thought to ask. So yeah, no, absolutely. Cool. I've been doing it for a long time. And I just recently decided, you know what? I came out to LA in the first place to be a performer. Um, I was an, I was an actor for, uh, for a number of years and, uh, got married and I couldn't uh, I couldn't stay up late doing kind of let that slide and now I'm like I need to get back into performing again I need that sort of things and so I can always just go into my booth you know and do goofy voices in the middle of the night after I finish editing you know my kids it's no stranger in our house for my kids to hear me like screaming bloody murder you know <laughs> or doing some sort of like you know golem voice or some kind of craziness in there it, you know at midnight or something like that um, I have an absolute blast doing it so well, before we say a 1-800-SIA, um, the, the catchphrase, I think like two before, nothing but yeah. Again, thank you. We'll send people to your website and uh, looking forward to whatever's next from you, Mark. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. It's been fun. This is Eric Senich, host of Booked on Rock. Join me for deep dive discussions on the greatest artists, albums, and songs in classic rock with the authors who've written all about them. You look at Joey Ramone. He just looked like a weird dude, but he had this unbelievable voice. He sounded like Elvis. Beggar's Banquet transported me. It scared me. It excited me. John was deeply moved and revolutionized by Yoko. Find Booked on Rock wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or just go to bookedonrock.com.